The Gucci girl, Prada professional, coach queen, or target trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. WebmasterRadio.fm presents First Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan, principal at Top Sales Strategies, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Retan. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. Each and every week you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country, the 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending, the woman. Well, first up, an article from Chuck Martin at Media Post talking about smart home technology. Uh, if you look around your home, you probably have some form of a smart gadget in it. Well, guess what? 69% of U.S. households do. They own at least one smart home device based on a new study. That translates to 83 million households. And of those, 80, 18% own more than one smart, smart home product. Um, so that's from the study by the Consumer Technology Association. Leading the way are audio video products. Um, about half of you out there actually own those, uh, followed by home networking, home security, energy management, and lighting. Uh, smart entertainment devices are, are huge. Wireless speakers, um, also big smart speakers with those voice assistants that many of you have smart smoke detectors monitor security systems smart thermostats and video doorbells are have all been trending high uh, the flood of smart home devices will continue of course we don't anticipate that it's going to go anywhere anytime soon and in fact it's expected to climb to 1.4 billion dollars in 2025 um, so yeah uh, about 31% of U.S. households without any smart home products is shrinking, according to Chuck Martin's article. Not surprising. And in fact, at some point, I'm sure each household out there will probably have some kind of smart home device. Our post profile today is the Prada Professional, a woman committed to her career but trying to achieve some balance in her life. Good luck to her. Average age of 36, married, about 75% of them are married, employed full-time, a little over half of them are parents, and the median individual income is 75K. Uh, they are very focused on their jobs, as you can imagine. Uh, they consider themselves to be a workaholic, uh, but at the same time, as I said, they're struggling for that balance. So when they have free time, they're spending it with their family or they're pursuing their interest in travel or the arts. Uh, when it comes to brands, they do stick with brands that they love. Um, they shop, they're willing to shop around for those brands, and they will even pay higher uh, for those brands. They enjoy uh, owning quality um, products as well, and um, but they do want to try to get the best price on those products. Um, they do invest a lot into their home, uh, so home design, furniture, that type of thing as well. Um, when it comes to brands, they're they're looking at Armani, Calvin Klein. They're shopping Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom. They're driving BMW and Audis um, as well. So if you're a marketer, how do you intersect with our product professional? Well, she's reading a lot of magazines and watching a lot of, of TV, including Real Simple, In Style, Vanity Fair. She's watching E! Food Network, uh, TLC um, as well. So 
my guest today, I'm really excited to have uh, Janine Keppo Crusette uh, on the show. She's she's going to be featured at the Miami Book Fair coming up here November 17th through 24th. Specifically, she'll be there the 23rd and 24th, and she's going to be having her uh, latest book there called My Time Among the Whites. Um, this is a collection of essays very personal to her about being what she calls an accidental American. Now, you may be aware of Janine. She is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Um, her other novel, Make Your Home Among Strangers, was actually a New York Times editor's choice book and also the winner of the 2015 International Latino Book Award. Um, it's been cited as a best book of the year by numerous media outlets and even it's been a must-read on American universities. Uh, she's currently the associate professor in the Department of English and Institute for Ethnic Studies at the University of Nebraska. But it's this book uh, that I think will resonate with many of you listening today, and I'm thrilled to have her come on after the break to, to share her approach on how she collected these essays. So stick around. When Purse Strings returns, you'll hear from Janine. Purse Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. It passes before it's noticed. A slight rising of the eyebrows, a widening of the eyes. It may be accompanied by an almost imperceptible inhalation. The heart adds a beat like a quiet exclamation point on the experience. Within a tenth of a second, the reaction has passed, but not without leaving its mark. Someone found what they're looking for. Does your website deliver impulses to act? It can. Intended Consequences is the podcast for digital marketers who see their job as changing hearts and minds. If you're frustrated, bored, or in a rut, it's time to spread your wings with me, Brian Massey, and my guests. Find out how successful, curious, creative, and data-driven marketers are making a difference on purpose. Visit IntendedPodcast.com or find us where you get your podcasts. Intended Consequences, marketing on purpose. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Miami may be the sun and fun capital of the world, but it's also home to the largest literary festival in the U.S. Don't miss the Miami Book Fair a week-long festival featuring more than 600 authors from all over the world with readings, signings, and panels capped off by a three-day street fair. Find books in English, Spanish, and Creole for every interest and every age, from biographies and novels to poetry and comics. This year, come meet poets Richard Blanco, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and Joy Harjo, award-winning novelists T.C. Boyle, Susan Choi, Edwidge Denticott, Taya Obrecht, Julie Orancher, Leonard Pitts, and Karen Russell, plus authors exploring issues of the day such as Eve Ensler, Alex Kutlowitz, Danny Shapiro, Daryl Pickney, Ambassador Samantha Power, George Wilt, and hundreds more. 
take the little ones to Children's Alley for hands-on activities, characters, and storytelling. Enjoy music, food, and fun for the whole family right on the downtown Miami-Dade College campus, November 17th to the 24th. For details, schedules, and tickets, visit MiamiBookFair.com. Welcome back to Purse Strings. My guest today is Janine Capo-Crisset, author of several books, including My Time Among the Whites, which is featured at the Miami Book Fair coming up November 17th through 24th. Now, you may have heard of Janine. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and her novel, Making Your Home Among Strangers, was a New York Times editor's choice book, the winner of the 2015 International Latino Book Award, and was cited as a best book of the year by numerous media outlets. It's also been adopted as an all-campus read at over 25 American universities, Janine is the author of award-winning short stories as well. I think you could say she's fairly prolific when it comes to writing. And she's an associate (laughs) professor in the Department of English and Institute for Ethnic Studies at the University of Nebraska. Yay to the Midwesterners. Congratulations on the new (laughs) book, Janine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is such a pleasure. Oh, I'm thrilled, 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 thrilled to have you. I know the Miami Book Fair is a pretty darn big deal, but you this is going to be the end for you of a what I would say is a fairly whirlwind tour of the country talking about this book. How is it? How's the book being received so far? Um, it's being, uh, I guess, with open arms is <laughs> the way I would put it. Um, but it's, you know, it's interesting, too, because I thought, um, you know, the title is so provocative and it's also mm-hmm. calling on these ideas of... Um, someone coming as an outsider looking in and sort of exotifying uh, white American culture in a way that, you know, there's always a risk that um, it'll sort of be taken in a certain way. And what I found is that the book is hitting all the right registers and people are seeing what, what it is I was trying to do uh, with these essays and, you know, which is talk about what it means to be an American citizen, uh, specifically after the 2016 election and how that's connected to history and, Mm-hmm. Um, pop culture and lots of different things. So, yeah, it's being received really well by pretty much everyone except maybe my parents, uh, <laughs> who just are like, What? Remember when you used to write novels and you made things up and now you're writing things that really happened? Maybe yeah. don't do that again. Yeah, uh, a little bit too little personal, bit. maybe, right? <laughs> well, I think they just, I, I think, you know, we come from a from a culture of like you keep things in the family um, yeah. and that that's the safest thing you can do. So to just tell stories, nothing in there is a you know, makes them look bad, but it does make them worry about what's coming next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the worry about what's coming next is not just what you're going to write about, right? But what's going to go on with this country as to what's coming next, right. um, you know, exactly. and we won't even go down that rabbit hole. Otherwise, that will take over this entire conversation. And I want to yeah, really be able to, you know, talk about uh, your essays. Um, it's interesting. I was reading, of course, um, on your website, and I've been reading what people have been saying about about um, your essays. And it is overwhelmingly, of course, extremely positive, as you said. Um you you talk about this collection of essays as as kind of being a take on being a quote unquote accidental American in an America where it's centered on whiteness. Now you're from Miami, and just before we mm-hmm. talked, I mentioned I I had spent a little bit of time in Miami. It, it is very much um, a melting pot in Miami. So I would even say Miami is. I don't know. This is my perspective as a white woman. So, you know, uh, very different. But 
I would say Miami is probably even more diverse than other areas of the country, uh, especially when it comes sure. to Cuban American, right? So, um, mm-hmm. it, but you really, you really take that perspective as a Cuban American, being from Miami, also working all over the country. And you've Mm -hmm. taken that as uh, kind of the foundation of your essays. Will you explain what you mean by being an accidental American? That, that word accidental really caught my attention. Yeah. um, I guess the, the reason I use that phrase of accidental American is that it's essentially an accident of history that I was born an American um, and that many people become American. And what I mean by that is when my parents left Cuba, they could have just as easily emigrated to Mexico and then I would be Mexican. Uh, They could have left to Spain and then I'd be a Spaniard. Uh, They could have gone to Canada and then I'd be Canadian. Uh, I, they came to the United States and luckily for me to Miami where there were plenty of other Cuban folks already. And so the work that that community had done to sort of center their own experience in the Miami experience is part of what made it um, easy to grow up there. I had a Cuban pediatrician. I had Mm -hmm. Cuban teachers. The principal of my high school was Cuban. And what I sort of argue in the book is that whiteness is is less a concept of race and more a concept of dominance. Mm -hmm. And so in Miami, Cubans get to be a kind of white. Mm -hmm. Um, Had my family instead of staying in Miami, gone to Nebraska, which is weirdly where mm-hmm. I live now. But um, there's a, you know, there was a community of Cuban exiles that were sent to communities in Nebraska. Uh, I would have had a very different experience of what it was like to be mm-hmm. Cuban and American. Uh, so, yeah, the idea of being an accidental American is that I didn't do anything to <laughs> become an American. I just sort mm-hmm. of, uh, it was just sort of an accident. It was sort of where, where luck put us. Mm-hmm. Or fate dropped my family, and now we're Americans. Yeah, and to your point, being quote unquote, you know, that accidental American in Miami, very different experience than being a that accidental American in Nebraska, right? Um, right, right. Yeah, and then of course your parents being from Cuba, I'm sure, of course, informed who you are today, right? And maybe even their notion oh, sure. of what it meant to be American. So can you talk a little bit about their perception of what it meant means to be American while also still trying to keep your culture alive as a Cuban American? Yeah. Um, so when my, I mentioned this in one of the essays, when my father and when my parents got their American citizenship, one of the first things my dad did was take us to Davie, Florida, which is um, just a, a few, a handful of miles north of, or actually it's more than that, but a few miles north of Miami. Um, and it's, it's sort of a, a ranchy community uh, or at least it was back then and he took us north to buy cowboy boots because he said well we're americans now we're you know we need some cowboy boots um <laughs> i remember he bought a lot of he got really into garth brooks uh and he got into nascar and he said well, these are these are, this is what it means to be american is these things you get into this these things um and so it was this interesting this interesting way of him sort of deciding based on what he saw around him what was American and um, that was a, that was a big part of it that Americanness was something you could sort of adopt that way uh, so that very much influenced I think more less obviously what they imparted was a sense of a work ethic and that the number one thing that they sort of passed down about what it meant to be American was just working extremely hard all of the time and, mm-hmm. and yeah and it was I don't know that that's 
a good thing necessarily, um, yeah. but it's definitely, uh, they were very much of the generation that believed that, that the pick yourself up by the bootstrap sort of mentality, mm-hmm. um, regardless of sort of the larger systemic forces that were, that sort of run contradictory to that philosophy. Mm-hmm. And did you see their point of view reflected in other Cuban Americans there in Miami? Do you feel like that was a consistent point of view about what it meant to be American? No, I, yeah, I don't think so. I think it it varied from family to family, and it definitely varied between generations of Cubans and when it was that they came over from the island, right? When they became, mm-hmm. uh, when they left Cuba and would become American, and it, I, it was something that was talked about a lot, and that they. You know, it, 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 yeah, I think it varied pretty drastically between people. And that's part of what I've tried to do with this book. I think a lot of times the larger dominant American culture will look at marginalized groups and sort of make them all one thing mm-hmm. and say, well, Cubans believe this and, you know, uh, Puerto Ricans think this and Dominicans feel this. And part of what I'm trying to do with this book is show that even within these groups, there's there's thousands of opinions and thousands of approaches. And this is just one and right. I try to examine it up against a bunch of different ones. Um, one of the things that I mentioned is in, in this essay about Disney World is talking about the writer Richard Blanco and that he produced a, an essay collection as well and has a whole essay about Disney World and what it meant to his family. And I read that and it felt very familiar and also not at all my experience of it. And so I had to write my own Disney essay sort of in conversation with him uh, to, to sort of open that up, right, and expand the cultural imagination around this. Um, this theme park that has had such a big impact on our culture. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I mean, kind of that all American, (laughs) right. I put that up there with apple pie and baseball, right. That whole Disney experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess the question I have for you is, do you feel like, and maybe your family felt like based on what you just said about your dad, uh, and cowboy boots and all of that. Do you feel like there were certain things that your family had to check off their list that were experiences they wanted to provide you to give you that quote unquote American experience? I don't know. That's a good question. I think part of what, because I, I hear in that question, the idea of, okay, we're well, going off to college is, is sort of one of the things that they'd yeah. want to do. And they were really torn about, college they were very happy to have me go to college but not to go far for school mm-hmm. that was you know their they, their dream was that they would sort of convert the garage into this efficiency apartment and I could come and go as I please but I'd be there for dinner every night and um, I would sort of be studying you know at Florida International University or the University of Miami which were both within driving distance of their home so it was this in some ways that encapsulates the hybridity of the identity right like well we want you to have this this thing, this college degree, not that going off to college is an inherently American thing, but the idea of, you know, doing better than the generation before you. My parents hadn't gone to college. The idea of going to college was, was part of that. Uh, but they didn't want me to go far. They wanted me to stay close. Uh, so that, I think that was one of those things. Um, and even just the idea of like graduating high school, that was a big, that was sort of a big milestone for the family um, to have that. And I, I don't know, I, I, it's the kind of question that I, that, is, that kind of prompted the writing of the essays in the first place, because as I mentioned in one of the essays, I'm named after the 1980 Miss USA runner-up. Um, so there was clearly <laughs> some like some homage to America or some sense of like, well, if we do these things, we'll sort of like create a bona fide American. Uh, yeah. But I'm still piecing it all together um, right. through writing. 
Yeah, yeah. It's very cathartic, I would imagine. D- yeah, d- yeah, yeah, for sure. And, but also kind of painful. Right, uh, not that right. Things don't go hand in hand. But. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they do, right? You have to get through the pain right. and then have the catharsis. You talked about um, college. You know, did you mm-hmm. talk about that college experience and then maybe compare that with that experience of being a working adult now in Nebraska of all places. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about kind of how those are different, maybe the same and what you've learned uh, about yourself through those? Yeah. So college was the first, having gone to college in upstate New York uh, where there were not a lot of people from the same background as me, um, but there were a lot of people all from the same background, uh, just not mine. Uh, so it was a, a weirdly homogenous space, but that finally the homogeneity was not uh, centered on on my own background, right? Like as it was in Miami to some extent. Uh, it was the first time I sort of understood that, uh, like how Cubans and Latinx Americans in general are viewed uh, outside of that sort of safe space of Miami. Um, so I learned very quickly uh, that it's sort of like that you had to work. I had to work against the cultural imagination of not just my ethnic heritage, but of my my like where I was from people were like oh you're from Miami you must love going to clubs all the time and I would just sort of be like uh well kind of but not really like they're expensive and they you get really sweaty it's not really you know it's not an everyday thing so it's this interesting uh idea of people had really firm notions of where I was from and were trying to impose them on me and have me just affirm those notions for them and whenever I tried to say anything a little more complex or that ran sort of a cross purposes to that understanding, it would turn into uh, like a, like a, a difficult moment. Um, mm. So I learned kind of quickly to, especially from peers, uh, other Latinx students who had gone to predominantly white high schools, there was sort of this sense of shutting down or being quiet or sort of like staying in your lane to not, um, to not cause conflict. And comparing that now to living in Nebraska, it's, uh, so I'm glad I learned those skills to some extent because they allow me to know when it's okay or not when it's okay, but when it's necessary to push back mm-hmm. against um, a misconception and when for your own safety, it's better to to not do that. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you find, I mean, you haven't now having lived in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. do you have a greater appreciation for having grown up in Miami? Say, versus growing up in Nebraska do you and by that I mean are you finding different stereotypical approaches from people in different regions that or yeah no I think I understand the question I think um I feel very grateful for having grown up in Miami because it allowed me to grow up with tremendous privilege of seeing people like me people whose families had similar stories to mine seeing them succeed and seeing them in positions of power. And there are a handful of places in this country where that could have been the case. Mm-hmm. And it just made all the difference for me feeling that, that my voice was worth being heard. Uh, it also led to when I would encounter moments of bigotry or racism, I was like confused by it rather because I had never uh, experienced it in those ways in Miami. And so I would I could be like, whoa, this is uh, this is really happening, and I would very quickly sort of intellectualize it or try to understand it. Uh, like even though I would have the reaction of anger or, or, or feeling hurt, uh, I also was able to sort of say, well, this isn't normal, even though it is very much normal in other in a lot of the country. And I mean, there is definitely racism in Miami. I don't want to give the perception that um, that it's 
that it's perfect there. Yeah. But there, I'm part of a dominant group that is in a lot of ways perpetuating the racism that people encounter. Yeah, yeah. And having lived there, I would absolutely confirm that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break, though, Janine. And when we come back, I, I do want to talk about this collection of essays, which are deeply personal, and talk about how your family has reacted to that. And also, you know, if the process of you working through this has enlightened them in any way. Uh, so we're going to, you, you ponder that during the break, and uh, everybody okay, else stick around, and uh, more from Janine when we return in just a moment. Purse Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. You are now tuned in to the world's largest online radio podcast network for internet marketers looking to dominate the B2B marketplace. WebmasterRadio.fm WebmasterRadio.fm is home to some of the most respected authorities in all aspects of internet marketing, from SEO to affiliate marketing to social media, e-commerce, mobile marketing, and so much more. Our hosts travel to all stretches of the world and speak to the impact players that are affecting our industry on air, on demand, and available on every mobile device that you can imagine. This is WebmasterRadio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Welcome back. I've been chatting with Janine Capot-Cruset. She's the author of several books, namely her newest one, uh, My Time Among the Whites, which is being featured at the upcoming Miami Book Fair, November 23rd and 24th, of course, in Miami. And I'm thrilled that Janine could make the time to talk about this collection of essays, um, really around her being an accidental American. And at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about what that meant and some of those experiences, both in those informative years growing up in Miami, also, though, what it was like to be a college student in New York and, um, you know, now a working adult, mainly there in Nebraska, where she works at the University of Nebraska. Um, You know, these essays, you've said, you know, deeply personal, kind of brought up a lot of um, 
experiences for you, some of them painful, you know, some of the cathartic. I'm just curious, you know, because it's so personal and it's about a lot of it, your family, what has been the impact of these essays on your own family? You know, we haven't, we haven't talked about it directly. Um, I gave my mom a copy, an early copy of the book, uh, because it seemed to me, my goal there was just that she could have, if she wanted to read it, she could see it. And, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a memoir in the sense that there aren't all these like family secrets that I'm trying to dissolve, but I sort of analyzed some of the dynamics of my family and their, their history in this country as um, microcosms for bigger questions about, you know, our culture and citizenship and concepts of race and ethnicity. So I think like when she read it, we talked on the phone and she, sort of told me, she was like, well, I mean, I think we remember things a little differently. And I think that was in connection to um, the, there's an essay called Nothing is Impossible in America, where I start, where I talk about this young girl that my mom always compared me to, and would try to get me to be more like her. And she was like popular and interesting and, and funny. Um, but she's also, uh, she's also white. And she would say, you know, she was just physically was trying to encourage me to be more like her. And when we talked about it, she was like, you know, I said, why did you, why did you do that? Why did you think that was, that I, you know, to give me the thing I could never be. You wanted me to try to attain that. And she said, well, you were really weird and you had no friends and you were miserable. And I was trying to make you better. And that girl was, everybody oh. liked her. Um, <laughs> so she did it. I was like, well, that kind of affirms my memory of how she, like, she kind of did it back down. And I, I, I admired that she was consistent, right? She was like, yeah, you were weird and you, you, you wore your hair weird and you liked the Muppets way too much. And this girl seemed to have it all together. And I thought if I could make you be like her, you'd be happier. Um, I was like, cool, I can keep writing this essay because we have the same core sort of feeling about this. So, um, and this, to some extent, like kind of expected from my father, you know, it's the last essay sort of indicates, uh, I'm not sure he's read it. I'm not sure he will. And, um, I think that's probably fine. I think that's for the best. You were pretty, I think the book and specifically that essay um, tries to speak to the experience of a lot of women who have pretty distant fathers and the kinds of um, traumas that that might lay the path for. Uh, so, you know, that's, it's really okay. I really kind of learned to accept it um, to some extent. I think writing the book allowed me to do that and sort of like pin down what I was feeling, um, at, you know, at the time of writing it. So with that, I know you talk a lot about the American dream uh, and I guess the emphasis on American, right? What that means. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like the quote unquote American dream is a reality in the U.S. still? And if, if so, for whom? Oh, well, it's, just, it's a thorny question because I think the definition of the American dream changes from person to person and based on the, the, the family that you were born into and the history that you were born into. I think for my parents, the idea of the American dream was really uh, very tight, tightly connected to home ownership and a kind of work ethic that allowed for ease later in life, right? So that you'd have retirement uh, or retirement plan and health benefits. And that the American dream was sort of that you'd be, that you'd be left alone and you'd be free to have your opinions. And for them, that's very much tied to having grown up in a communist country that, you know, that you felt like everything, they, they felt that whatever they worked for was going elsewhere and that they weren't allowed to express sort of distaste with the government or, or distrust of the government in some way openly. Uh, so in, in that very narrow definition, yeah, it's absolutely still something that's attainable 
uh, I think that broader question of the American dream being that you can be anything you want to be if you just work hard enough. I think that's, I think that's always been untrue. Um, and it might be true for a certain small subset of the, of, of the American population uh, and that that population has a particular uh, demographic look to them. I don't, but even there, I'm like, you don't even have to work hard. If you're born into a really rich family, you can, you can have things. Um, that if somebody's born into a, a, like a, a low income family, they could work 10 times harder and never achieve that. So, uh, but at the same time, if I hadn't been fed that narrative uh, that if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything, I don't think I would have gone to college. I don't think I would have had the courage to follow my passion and become a writer. I think I would have, I would have thought, oh, well, it's, it's set up in such a way that oh, the odds are so far against me. Why try? So, I mean, there's no easy answer to that question. And it's what prompts me to, to try to write these essays where I bring in literature and culture and music and try to figure out, you know, the answer somewhere in the middle of all those things. Uh, does that make sense? It does. No, it does. And to your point, the American dream is deeply personal and it will change, but mm -hmm. that, overarching sense of hard work and gritty, I call it like grittiness, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and succeeding in the face of, you know, uh, lots of uh, potential barriers, I think is very quote unquote American, but is it real, mm -hmm. right? Is that real? Right. I think that. And who it, does, and who does, yeah. And who does that narrative serve, right? Yes. Like the idea yes. that if you work hard every day of your life, you'll achieve something who is ultimately benefiting from that? Like, yes. are you, or is the person doing the work benefiting from that or, is, or, or just who? And are that's you? all I'm are, asking. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, I'm asking people to consider those questions uh, maybe for the first time um, as they encountered the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think people will bring their point of view to your essays, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because we all have unique, points of views depending on lots of things right socioeconomics ethnicity all kinds of things um but your this collection of essays is uniquely your voice and um i think it's fantastic that you've you've brought them forward to share with the world and i know miami book fair you're going to be extremely well received there in your own backyard uh <laughs> well it's hometown it's hometown yeah. love and you know it's in a lot of ways the book is um, especially some of the essays are geared towards that crowd, that hometown crowd of saying, hey, we have to take a look at ourselves um, and what this, what being from here really means and what, what, what the privilege of it can mean, but also the difficulties of it. Uh, but it's also in some ways a book I wrote for my neighbors here in Nebraska so that they <laughs> can understand people that they encounter that are different from them uh, yeah. in maybe a more com compassionate way. And we need compassion these days, for sure, and understanding. Oh, so sure. thank you and, for your and efforts. And humor, yeah, <laughs> humor. And, and humor too. Which I know that it's, I know that it's uh, this like book that sounds like it's got all these heavy topics. But one of the things that I've been so pleased with the so many of the reviews and readers that I hear from talk about that the book is so funny. And I don't totally even know how I pulled it off to make this book that's about you know race and citizenship <laughs> since the 2016 election. Um, funny, but it's right? also funny. So <laughs> it's a, I think it's a way through and I think humor is a way to have difficult conversations. It's a way to sort of yeah. bring someone into your confidence before telling them the thing that they, that you feel needs to be said. So 
you know, there's always that too. It's it's pretty it's a pretty funny book uh, <laughs> somehow. Well, and I, I I do encourage people to purchase it. Uh, I'm assuming it's at every major bookseller and on Amazon. Yes, and also at um, independent bookstores, and you can check it out on IndieBound. Uh, then find your local bookseller that will have copies that they can either that just either have them there or they can order it for you. Um, and it'll be available at the Miami Book Fair as well. Of <laughs> so, course, yes. And with, with the signature too, I copy. hope, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you can pick up a, I'd be happy, very happy to sign books. In fact, I tend to get very, uh, I turn it into like a yearbook entry. It's like <laughs> I have not learned how to sign books quickly, but I end up leaving um, with like all these new friends, uh, which is wonderful it. for me, but I feel bad for the people near the end of the line. They got it. That's all right. They hang in there. They're willing to hang in there. So you know they're committed, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Well, I wish you luck there. And I do want to recommend people check out your your website as well. I'm going to spell it. J for your first name. C-A-P-O. C-R-U-C-E-T dot com. So uh, just your first initial, your last names, all there together. Uh, lots of information on not only this book, but your previous books and your collection of essays, that uh, short stories, excuse me, that you've done. Um, mm-hmm. If people are thrilled with this book, they might want to go check out some of your previous books as well. So uh, thank yeah, for you sure. so much for being on, Janine. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is such a wonderful time. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And thanks to my producer, George, as well. And join me again for Purse Strings. Until then, make it a great one. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.